As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 9. We'll also spend a good bit of time today in Romans chapter 5. Now let me ask you a question as we start today. How many of you are hard-headed sometimes? Okay. How many of you were too hard-headed to raise your hand whenever I asked you if you're a little bit hard-headed? I know in my own life I can be hard-headed sometimes. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, running was a big part of my life. When I graduated high school, I quit running, and for about 20 years, I refused to run. And then one day, I just decided I want to take it up again. And man, I went through all sorts of stuff. I I had a stress fracture in my knee, but I was hard-headed. I'm like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep running. So then I I tore a flexor muscle, but I was like, hard-headed. I'm going to keep going. Then I wound up hurting my feet, but I'm hard-headed. Eventually, I began to figure out, you know, it's not like it used to be when I was 18 anymore. You know, a few things change, but, but I'm hard-headed, and I, I keep at it. And even though I run so slowly that the turtles pass me when I run, and the ducks actually think I'm one of them because they see me waddling down the road, you know. But I'm hard-headed, and just like you guys, sometimes I just, I just refuse to quit. And sometimes it also takes a little while for things to sink in. In Luke chapter 9... Jesus has revealed four things to his disciples. Number one, he's revealed that he's the Messiah. He's not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, not merely an example, but Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one to which they had been looking. Secondly, he taught them that he's not a trophy Messiah who just came to hand out rewards, but instead he is going to be the suffering Messiah. And Jesus told them of his death and his resurrection. But then there was a third thing that he taught them. He said, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then you must learn to deny yourself, pick up the cross, and then follow me. Follow my example. And then fourth, we saw last week that he also revealed to his disciples that though he is a suffering Messiah, he is also the Son of God. And we saw him transfigured, and we saw his divinity revealed before some of his disciples. And so he has been teaching them this over and over again, hoping that all of this will take root, that they will begin to understand who he is and what his mission is, that his mission is ultimately to die. But some of the disciples are a little bit hard-headed, and they're still like, huh? Uh, Okay, Jesus, I've heard you talk about this, but when are we going to overthrow Rome? When are you going to reestablish the throne of David? And so in verses 43 and following, Jesus once again begins to press in to his disciples on the matter. Look with me to verse 43. The scriptures say, while everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing. Now I want to pause right there. What had just happened is Jesus just freed a man from a demonic spirit. He had freed him from the shackles of evil. And so the scriptures say here that everybody was amazed at all the things that Jesus was doing. In life, you will have a lot of admirers and you will have a few true friends. True friends are those people that love you for who you are. They will be with you during good times. They will be with you during bad times. They might be family, they might be people that you've met along the way, but they are true friends that learn to love you in spite of you. They love you for who you are. 
you'll also have some admirers. These people are those that love you for what you do. Maybe it's the way you look. Maybe it's some skill that you bring. Maybe it's an opportunity for them to get advancement or for them to make more money. But they will admire you and they will want to be close to you because of what you do. Now, when it comes to admirers, be aware of this. As soon as what you do goes away, their admiration will flee as well. They admire you for what you do, not for who you are. You see this sometimes with pro athletes. You'll have a pro football player. He'll have money, fame, power, a million followers on Twitter. And then he has a career-ending injury. Or perhaps he has something happen in his life that takes him out of football. And suddenly he can't play. And immediately, very soon, all of his admirers kind of go with them. And it almost seems as though the ex-athlete is living a very lonely life. Your admirers will leave as quickly as they come. Because they don't really care about you. They love what you do. Now I say that to say this. Jesus had a lot of admirers. He had a lot of people that had latched on to him that were following him because he was healing the blind. He was passing out food. He was doing good things. They admired him for what he was doing, yet they were not loving him yet for who he was. And so he says to the disciples in verse 44, let these words sink in. In other words, let me say it again. Quit being so hard-hearted. You need to make sure that you get this. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Disciples, you need to understand this. A lot of the crowd here is just admirers. They like me for what I do. But I want to remind you that I'm going to be betrayed and handed over to the hands of men. And the same crowd that will welcome me into Jerusalem and proclaim the greatness of my name, that same crowd will be the ones that yell just a few days later, crucify him, crucify him. Anybody ever watched the TV show Undercover Boss? You ever seen that show? Well, if you haven't ever seen it, here's the premise of the show. Uh, A CEO or a high-level executive within the company will go undercover and they'll disguise themselves, and they'll take on an entry-level position within this large company. And so the show follows them as they do various entry-level jobs, and the people that they're talking to are completely unaware that this is the CEO of the company. And then at the end of the show, the CEO reveals himself, and the pe- they have the conversation. A lot of times there's heartwarming moments, and on occasion somebody gets fired. But, but you know, at the end of the show, they kind of reveal that they really are the boss. Jesus' favorite phrase or term for himself was to refer to himself as the Son of Man. Now, when Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, on the surface, it seems to be a reference to his humanity, that he's the Son of Man, just like you and I are, that he's flesh and blood, that he's human. And indeed, that would not be an improper connotation of that term. But if you go deeper, you begin to understand that it has a deeper reality. In Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is referenced, but it is revealed that the Son of Man is actually the Son of God, that the Son of Man is in reality the Ancient of Days, the Messiah himself. And so when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, 
it is a subtle reference to the fact that, yes, I am man, but I am also God. I am the Son of God. And Jesus, as the Son of God, went undercover, so to speak. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He looked like us. He laughed like us. He experienced the same pains that we experienced, yet He is not just like us. He's also the Son of God. And so He says to His disciples, let this sink in. I am not just a trophy Messiah here to pass out participation rewards. My mission is the cross. Now, if you think about it, Jesus had a good thing going. Everybody liked him. I mean, everywhere he went, there were massive crowds. As a preacher, from a church growth perspective, things were going really well. The the church, the movement was growing. So, here's my question. Why couldn't Jesus just love people, pass out some candy, and help those who are hurting? Why, why all this death and dying? Why all this talk about the cross? Why couldn't he just be a, a nice guy that, that helped people and loved people and, and demonstrated what it means to live a life that follows God? Why, why did he have to die? Well, here's my answer. Because the world is broken. And the world is broken in such a way that we need God to fix it. Turn with me in your Bibles. Go ahead and open them up if you haven't already opened them to Romans chapter 5. You're going to want to actually see these words as well in Romans chapter 5. Now let me say this about the book of Romans. Pretty well every verse in the book of Romans is a meal. Uh, And because you don't want me to preach a three-hour sermon today, we're going to snorkel a little bit over Romans chapter 5. But I want you to take in this. We're going to move pretty quickly, but I want you to take in this because there's some incredible truth here that I think you'll really, really enjoy. The reality is that we know that things aren't right. We have this nagging sense that the world is broken. Now, we don't like to think about it very often. We would prefer to think about happy things. We would prefer to think about March Madness and who's going to win the NCAA tournament Uh, We would prefer to think about Chip and Joanna and what house they're going to renovate this week. Yet everywhere we go in life, you never really can totally escape this nagging truth that no matter how much we laugh, no matter how much we try to get away or think about other things, there is a lot of darkness, there is a lot of injustice, there are things about our world that are just simply not right. Well, in verse 12, the Scriptures begin to unlock the mystery of what is broken. The Bible says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, there was a time when Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World was true. We saw trees of green. There were red roses too, skies of blue, clouds of white. They were bright, blessed days indeed. In the Garden of Eden, there was a peace to the creation. There was a shalom with which creation lived within. And indeed, it was a wonderful world. God looked down and He saw it and He said, This is good. 
the only thing that wasn't good about it was that Adam was alone. And so God made Eve, and he then became, they became husband and wife, and they became the first married couple. And so we see the world was good. It was void of death. It was void of suffering. It was void of uh, sin and all the difficulty that goes along with that. But then sin slithered into the creation. And you know the story. Adam and Eve succumbed to that sin. And they brought sin into the world. Well, verse 12 tells us that their sin was not limited to themselves. That a universal epidemic broke out. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, they themselves grew old and died. But it didn't stop there. Death spread to all people. I've looked it up. I found it on the internet so you know it's true. We all die. It is 100% death spread to all people. And the scriptures also teach us that Adam's sin was passed down to all humanity so that we all sin. We all fall short of God's glorious standards. We all do things which are wrong. Now continue in verse 13. The Bible says, in fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a prototype of the coming one. Whenever you read the book of Genesis and you read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, those individuals that we call the patriarchs of their faith, you see their wives, you see their children, and you see that they laughed, they cried, they had good times, they had bad times. There were times in their life when they were spiritually alive. There were times in their life when they ran from God and did the wrong thing. But in the end of each of their lives, you see a common denominator. They all died of the disease of sin. Well, then when we get to the book of Exodus, God raises up a man by the name of Moses. And God gives him what the scriptures refer to as the law. There in verse 13, when the Bible refers to the law, it's not talking about the constitution of the land. It's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. When God began revealing His standards, His holiness, those things that are right and those things that are wrong to humankind. And with the giving of the law, we were now able to, stick with me, we were now able to diagnose the problem. Because the law is there, we can see this is what is righteous, this is what is unrighteous. And so we could see that the great problem of humankind is sin. Yet we still had a problem. Though we could diagnose the problem, we were unable to cure the fatal disease. Generation after generation, people unwrapped Adam's gift of sin. Generation after generation, people lived and died, and the disease of death continued to spread. Well, in verse 15, the scripture gets a little bit more cheerful. But the gift, now the gift is talking about Jesus. The gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ. Now, let this sink in. 
Adam gave you a gift. And Adam's gift to you and to me was sin and death. That was nice of Adam, wasn't it? You say, well, I don't even know Adam. Well, you received a gift from him, okay? And the gift that you received from him is sin and death. And you live in a world that is stained by sin in every corner because of the gift that he gave you. But the scriptures here paint a contrast. You have Adam as a representative of humanity there in Eden, and you have Jesus as a representative of humanity there on the cross. And Jesus, too, gave you a gift. But instead of a gift of sin and death, the gift that Jesus extends to you is a gift of grace and life. Well, it continues in verse 16. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Now let this sink in. Adam's gift that he gave you, the Scripture says, results in judgment and condemnation. Now within our culture, those are two words that we shriek at. Don't judge me, man. Okay? Hey, I'm not judging you. Hey, I'm not condemning you. That's not my role. But the Scriptures here use both of those words. And they say specifically that because of our sin, because of Adam's gift, that we face judgment and condemnation. So imagine in your mind you have a court date. There is a date that has been established for you when you will stand before the judge. And whenever you stand before the judge, the verdict is going to be guilty. You have sinned. You will receive the judgment of that guilt. The Scriptures say there is condemnation for the sin. This is the gift of Adam. But now that is contrasted by the gift of Jesus. Because the passage says that Jesus brings to us the gift of justification. And with justification comes forgiveness. Justification is a legal term within the Greek language. It has to do with being pronounced not guilty. And so, yes, we still have that court date with the judge. Yes, we will one day stand before the judge. But the verdict has already been read. For those of us who are in Christ... We stand today knowing that when we stand then, the verdict is going to be not guilty. That's what justification means. It means that you are not guilty. You have been pronounced innocent. You say, hold on, Lash, I've sinned. I've done things that are wrong. Guess what? So have I. We're in the same boat together. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. In Christ, we don't stand under the judgment In Christ, we have been justified. We have been pronounced not guilty. In Christ, we have freedom rather than shackles. In Christ, we have life rather than death. In Christ, we have grace rather than judgment. In Christ, we have been justified. Is this sinking in yet? Are you getting it? Well, it continues in verse 17. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life 
through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let this sink in. Adam's sin, Adam's gift brought to you and to me the overflow of death. In other words, it overflowed the life of Adam. It was not contained within himself. It overflowed in such a way that it infected all. Jesus' gift to you brings an overflow of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is not contained to the cross, but it overflows the cross and is available to you. On both occasions, you see the word all to everyone. The the scope of the disease is the scope of the cure. (laughs) Well, it gets even better in verse 18. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. Everybody say the word everyone with me. Everyone. So also, through one righteous act, there is life-giving justification for, what's the word? Now let this sink in. Through one act of sin, Adam brought death into the world, which ultimately led to condemnation for everyone, the scope of the disease. Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, brought life-giving forgiveness that is available to everyone, the scope of the cure. You see, Jesus doesn't call us to proclaim a salvation to all that is only available to some. There is nobody in this room that is beyond the reach of grace. Because of what Christ did on the cross, I want you to get this. Let this sink in. Salvation is available to you. No matter how dark your past no matter how abusive your past, no matter how you feel about yourself, it's not about you, it's about God. And His salvation is available to you. It meets you where you are and takes you to where you need to be. Salvation is available to you. Is our God amazing or what? Let me rewind the DVR and just say that again because I think this generates more of a reaction, okay? Is our God amazing or what? Now, you don't take truths like this and just squeeze them into your life. Truths like this transform your life. Now, just a little side note, chase a little squirrel here. I think a lot of times in church, we try to take the truths of God and just kind of add them to who we already are. And what we need to realize is that who we are on our own is insufficient. You can't be good enough. You can't give. You can't be charitable enough. You can't be nice enough. You still find yourself a recipient of Adam's gift, needing God to do something for you that brings into your life the overflow of grace. You don't just need a truth that you can add to your life. You need a truth that can transform your life. You don't just need a truth that is generated within you. You need a truth that is transcendent of you, a truth that can redeem you from your soul outward. 
And so I just want to ask you this final question before I finish this morning. Has there ever been a time in your life when you personally trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please? The musicians are going to come and they'll lead us in our uh, final songs today. Before they do, I, I just want to ask you this question again. Has there ever been a time in your life when you personally trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord? Maybe today as we were looking at these scriptures, they just jumped off the pages and landed in your heart. Maybe today needs to be your moment when you surrender to Christ and you receive Him as Savior and Lord. And so with your head bowed, I'm, you can use whatever words you want to use, but I would invite you to say something to God such as this. Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. I've done things that are wrong. And I need your forgiveness. Right now in this moment, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior, as my Lord. I desire forgiveness and grace and I desire your presence to transform my soul. I pray that this is my day of salvation so that I might follow you in every area of my life and live my life for your glory. Father, please save me. I would encourage you, if this is your moment, to pray that in the name of Jesus. Our heads are still bowed. Nobody's looking around at this time. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to be a pastor to you. And if today's your moment of salvation, I, I would like to know. I'd like to encourage you and pray for you and help you however I can. And so I would ask you just to look up at me and let me make eye contact with you. If today was your moment of salvation, would you just look up at me? It's a big day, isn't it? Anybody else? Today your moment? I'd love to talk to you about baptism, about next steps, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Never forget this moment right now when you receive the salvation of Jesus Christ into your life because you are a new creation in Christ. Church, let's stand together. Let's sing this hymn with the praise team.